Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast with me, Jeremy Walker, a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Media Gratii produce this podcast, and uh, you can visit them at mediagratii.org, where not only can you sign up to a newsletter that will bring you this weekly podcast and the document that we study each week from Spurgeon's sermons, but other podcasts, including uh, an annual devotional that I've done, uh, Word in Season 365-6, daily podcasts, uh, just five minutes, uh, bringing some hopefully encouraging thoughts from the Word of God, and then John Snyder's The Whole Council. Today we're working our way still through Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons. Each week we read usually seven sermons, one a day. And this week we're reading from Sermon 829 to 835. And if you'd like to follow us in that regard, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, where we post the weekly reading and uh, hopefully some daily quotations. Then each week there's a featured sermon, some representative sample of Spurgeon's ministry that we hope will be uh, a blessing, a flavour, instructive, uh, encouraging to us as Christians, seeking to walk in the in the ways of God, but also uh, teaching us more about what it means both to preach and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This week then, as I said, it's Sermon 830, and the title is Grey Hairs. It was preached on the 13th of September in 1868, a Lord's Day morning in Newington at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and the text is Hosea 7 and verse 9. Grey hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. So when you hear the title, you might have thought, well, maybe this is a sermon about uh, growing old graciously. Uh, Maybe it's a a sermon about the, the, the challenges or the rigors of old age, but Uh, As you see the sermon develop, you'll be, I hope, intrigued by the way that Spurgeon handles this, I think faithfully with regard to the text and how he brings it very closely to bear upon our souls. It's a sermon fundamentally that is designed to provoke self-examination and of a rigorous kind. Spurgeon begins by uh, emphasizing that uh, the the London in which he lives and the, the Britain in which he dwells is a place where moral decline is everywhere. A general laxity of commercial morality may by degrees sap and undermine the foundation of our commerce before we're aware our industry may be crippled, our trade withdrawn, our position among the nations debased. If so, we shall fall by our sins and by our sins alone. And Spurgeon's point is that uh, the nation as a whole Uh, in its spiritual tone, in its moral calibre, has been uh, declining and uh, sliding back and down. Zealous and active, prayerful and united, churches once grew in strength, but discord crept in, or worldliness or pride, the Holy Spirit departed, the ministry became barren, the people looked up to the shepherd and were not fed. And he says there's a, a danger that this could happen in any congregation. These grey hairs might come upon the heads of uh, nations, might come upon the heads of churches, this weakness, this decline, this downgrade. I should say, if you know Spurgeon's future history, he doesn't use the language of downgrade here, but it's perhaps striking if we look ahead 
that there are things of which he speaks here that would painfully come to pass. And so as he comes into the text, he says, you can have this decline nationally. You can have this decline ecclesiastically, but I'm not here to speak of nations or of churches, which might interest you, but not edify you. I want to speak, he says, of individuals. Brothers and sisters, let us turn our thoughts to ourselves. I pray, he says, that God the Holy Spirit may stir us up to self-examination, that if any strange sin or evil passion may have devoured our strength, at any rate we may know it and drive out the traitor at once. So, remember the text, Hosea 7 verse 9, Grey hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And here's the outline. I want to endeavour to explain the reason of the ignorance mentioned in the text, yet he knoweth not. Secondly, I shall hold up the glass, that is the mirror, that every Ephraim here may see his grey hairs. And then thirdly, I shall recommend remedies for this gradual decay. So, why are we ignorant of these grey hairs? What are the marks of decay and backsliding for which we ought to look? And are there any remedies for the condition? First of all then, following Spurgeon as our preacher, let me explain the ignorance here mentioned, he says, or show how it is that many a man is backsliding and declining in grace and yet knows it not. Here then are the ways in which we can be in decline and be ignorant. First of all, simply a want of acquaintance with one's own soul. We don't really know ourselves. It's said in London we don't know our next door neighbours, but we don't even know our own hearts, says Spurgeon. We're not aware of the state that we're really in. We don't open our spiritual eyes even to gaze into ourselves. Everywhere we see among men a great want of acquaintance, a great lack of self-understanding with their souls, a great forgetfulness of the motto of the old Delphic oracle, man know thyself, and consequently it is that men decline almost unto spiritual death and yet scarcely know it. Now, notice what he's doing here. He is handling the text, but he's unpacking it, and it's almost all application. He's constantly bringing this close to us. It's a a really instructive way uh, of both expounding and almost applying at the same time. Every every explanation of the text, uh, every uh, drawing out of its threads actually brings it closer. It's it's a, a fascinating, it's a useful, it's a I think a rare skill. Then he says, men don't want to know any evil thing about themselves. And that's another reason why they're in decline. They'd rather suppose themselves rich than actually know how poor they are. They, they'd rather have a, a bandage put over the wound, as it were, than uh, to actually have the wound probed and healed. They're satisfied to dream that things are well rather than to face the reality of nakedness and poverty and misery in the spiritual realm. So you've got the problem that we don't know ourselves and actually we don't want to know much about ourselves if it's not good news. And we might say at this point, well, Spurgeon could just as well be speaking into the 21st century as he was into the 19th. Then Men do not see grey hairs because they do not look into the glass to see them. 
So here again, the grey hairs are, are representative of decay and decline and backsliding. And he says people just don't want to look in the mirror. They're not interested in, in seeing accurately. And so you've got these unread Bibles, neglected Bibles, which cry out against those who own them. What swift witnesses will they be against many professors in the last heart-searching day? You've got everything you need, says Spurgeon, to know the true state and condition of your own soul. But you don't look into the mirror of God's word. Or, if you do look into a glass to see whether there are grey hairs coming, they use a false mirror which doesn't truly reflect the image. That is, multitudes of Christians set up a standard of what a Christian ought to be far other than the standard of Holy Scripture. They compare themselves among themselves, and so they're happy to be as, as, as holy or as prayerful or whatever it may be as, as someone else in the congregation, and they're measuring by the wrong standard. It's, it's good for us, says Spurgeon, to aim high. If you, if you shoot at the moon, you'll not hit it, but you'll still shoot higher than the man who aims at a bush. And so aiming at absolute perfection, though you should not attain it, may at any rate be something better than he who takes some poor imperfect friend of his and makes him to be a standard. Spurgeon says, break your false mirrors. Don't be satisfied to be about the same or maybe a little better than someone else who is struggling. Rather look at Christ and consider what it means to be like him and don't then rest satisfied with anything less. And then he says, I'm ashamed to say that some who are decaying in strength do not see their spiritual grey hairs because they dye themselves so thoroughly. That is, they colour their grey hairs with hypocrisy. There are men who, if every hair were grey, would still wear raven locks in their own judgment. That is, they'd, they'd have this uh, sort of very black, dark hair looking very sort of uh, uh, fresh and lively. But, but Spurgeon says, it's all a sham. It's the easiest thing in all the world to counterfeit the issues of the mint of heaven, that is to, to pass things off as if they're truly spiritual, to pass that spurious coin amongst your fellow creatures and to make them think that you're far richer than they in gracious things, while all the while your virtues counterfeit and your profession a lie. Oh, my hearers, he groans, take care of putting formal prayer, sham holiness and imitation godliness into the place of the real fruits of the Spirit. God, save us from hiding from ourselves our secret faults. Let's be willing to be spoken to by the rough preacher's stern voice. Let's be greedy to read those passages of Scripture which try us most. Let it be our prayer. Search me, O God, and try my heart. Daily and hourly, let us desire to feel the refining fire go through our soul. Come with the fan in thy hand, O Saviour, the, the winnowing fan, he means, the, the threshing fan, and thoroughly purge my floor, and let my chaff be driven away, and let nothing but the pure wheat remain. So Spurgeon wants us to want this. He wants us to be honest and to want to be honest. He wants us to want not to be ignorant anymore, but to see accurately and clearly. And he says, this is why you don't, because you don't know yourself, because you don't like knowing about the, the problems that you have, that you don't use the, the mirror of God's word, that you're quite content to use a false mirror and so set yourself up with a flawed standard and then to dye yourself with the appearance of godliness while you're truly uh, 
in decay. It's a, a potent way of bringing that truth to bear. And I hope you see what I mean there by, by the, the exegesis or the explanation and the application being woven together. We now know what it means to, to have these spiritual grey hairs here and there upon us and not to know because Spurgeon's shown us those things in ourselves. Secondly, though, remember, he wants us to hold up the looking glass. He wants us to see these things accurately. He wants us to know what are the marks of decay and backsliding. So this is how it happens, and this now is uh, what it looks like. He says backsliders are not put out of the visible church all at once. They don't become open offenders all at once. Rather, the heart by slow degrees turns aside from the living God, and then at last comes the outward sin and the outward shame. God save us then from falling by little and little. Satan, he says, captures one man by force of strong temptation, yes, but he captures ten by the gradual process of sapping and undermining the principles which should rule within. Not every professing Christian falls because of some sudden assault in strength upon the soul, but very often by a, a gradual undermining, a, a, a sapping of that strength, a, a drawing away of our vigour and energy over time. Perhaps we're uh, ready to look out for the sudden rush, but we're not so conscious of the steady grind. Spurgeon says, what then does this decay look like? One of the grey hairs which marks decay is the want or lack of holy grief for daily sin. Repent, says one. Why, I repented when I was converted. Not since then, asks Spurgeon. Why, repentance and faith go hand in hand to heaven. A Christian must never leave off repenting, for I fear he never leaves off sinning. Where there's none of the dew of repentance, there is one sign of a curse. Your God is a jealous God, he says, and if he sees that you treat sin so lightly, rest assured he will make you smart before long and withdraw his Holy Spirit from you and leave you to grope in darkness. He's asking, when was the last time you thought about the fact that you have sinned and it brought you low and made you to cry out to God for mercy? He says, if you're not doing that, if you're not doing that day by day, if you've got no sense of the sins that you are committing, then you are in decay and decline spiritually. Another mark, he says, of this is the absence of lamentation in the soul when Jesus Christ is dishonoured by others. It just doesn't bother us when his, his name is uh, dishonoured and uh, blasphemed and neglected. If you love the Master, he says, it would be a painful thing to live in such a wicked world as this. If you loved the sweet Lord Jesus, your bowels would yearn, that is, your, your heart would churn, we might say, your, your, your guts would be twisted up over those who see not his beauty and to whom he is as a root out of dry ground. Shame on us, shame most of all on myself, he says, that I can walk through these streets of London without tears. Again, how bothered am I? by the disdain that men show for Jesus, either just the careless neglect or the actual assault. If that doesn't bother me, then I am in decline. I am not where and what I ought to be. Another problem, he says, 
showing that the disease has gone far is the indulgence of certain minor sins or what people suppose to be minor sins. And he uses the illustration of the thief who uh, puts a small boy into a, a rich man's house through a small window who can then go and open the door to let the big thief in. And so the house is plundered. In the same way, says Spurgeon, when Satan cannot overthrow a believer with the gross sins of the flesh, he's certain to find some lesser evil which he introduces through an unguarded place and then the lesser sin opens the door for the next. It's the the thin end of the wedge. It's the, uh, the little weakness. It's the wall that's broken down in one place. It's the, the postern gate that's opened during the siege. And then the enemy somehow comes in and they then let others in after them. And Spurgeon says that's how it so often happens. And haven't we so often seen it? A little bitterness, a little anger, a little lusting, a little self-indulgence, a little laziness, a little pride. And how often the, the great uh, expressions of sin uh, follow in hot on the heels of these matters. By degrees, by slow degrees, those who once openly professed Jesus Christ give up virtually all the truthfulness of their profession, make shipwreck of faith and are castaways because the grace of God was not truly in them. We've seen it. Perhaps you know people who have done it. Spurgeon says, don't do it yourself by allowing those sins that we often consider smaller to get a toehold in our souls. What he says next is interesting. He talks about covetousness. Spurgeon says that this covetousness is a very common grey hair that few will confess. And he warns us to beware of a growing covetousness, for it is of all sins one of the most insidious, that is, it worms its way into our soul. It's like a river silting up. Instead of doing more for God, the covetous man does less. The more he saves, the more he wants, the more he wants of this world, the less he craves for the world to come. This disease creeps upon men as slowly as certain disorders which slumber in the blood for months until they find occasion to develop themselves. Watch against a grasping spirit, dear friend. If you find the money stick to your hands, mind what you are at. It is well enough, all well enough for you to seek to make all you can rightly. You're bound to do that and to use it properly, says Spurgeon. But when the gold begins to cleave to you, when it clings to you, it will eat as doth a canker and will soon prove your ruin unless God prevents it. And then he says, some it's not so much covetousness distinctly, but the same sin, worldliness. People who are as much taken up with the little that they have as some would be with their much and who are as much drawn away from God by their losses as others would be by their gains. So some are always wanting more and some are always groaning that they don't have more. They're never content with what they have. A man can do as much business as the wealthiest merchant in the world, says Spurgeon, and if he lives near to God, it will not hurt him. But a man can do a tin-pot business, as they say, and yet for all that, because he puts his soul into it, cares about it, worries over it, and departs from the living God, it will consume the graciousness of his soul, take away all the sharpness of his Christian zeal, all the brightness of the holy communion which he once had with his God. Then the grey hair of envy can be visible even in some of the best. 
Some of God's servants are not satisfied to serve God in their own way. They need to make it their aim to excel some other brother, and if that brother should happen to be more successful, or to be thought to be so, straight away they feel aggrieved, and they want to try and pick a hole in his coat or pull a feather from his cap, lest he should outshine them. This is the sin, warns Spurgeon, of some of the hardest workers in Christian churches. And pastors are by no means immune to this. Uh, People can be uh, labouring hard, not because they want to honour and glorify God, but because they don't want someone else to steal a march on them. Spurgeon says, give no quarter to the foul spirit of envy. It's a devil with as many lives as a cat, and you'll have to kill it a great many times to get rid of it. But it must be slain. And then there's pride. When we think ourselves to be something, but we're really nothing. When we write fine things about ourselves, we shall soon write bitter things against ourselves. A professor is never lower in the sight of God than when he is high in his own esteem. Another grey hair, neglect of prayer. Our soul is the harbour, our prayers are the vessels by which we trade between our souls and heaven, and when these prayers begin to be fewer, or are of lighter tonnage, when they make fewer voyages to the celestial haven, then be sure that our soul's spiritual trade is under a sad decay. Then there's no delight in listening to the word or reading it. When you were hungry, you could eat gospel meat from the bone, cut how it might be. But oh, now it must be daintily carved or your stomach turns against it. You need a fancy preacher now. The ordinary Sunday ministry's not enough. You're a conference guy. Conference girl, you've got to go where only the best are preaching. When the appetite fails, says Spurgeon, the man's health is wrong and he needs a tonic. And perhaps the great physician will before long send him a bitter draught which will bring him right. Another grey hair is lack of love to God when we think hard thoughts of him because we're in trouble, when we don't seek his honour, when we can hear his name blasphemed without a thrill of horror, when we do not in fact love him as a tender child loves a parent. Oh, beloved, it is a sweet thing to love God. It's the true life of man, this love of God in the soul. When you can talk with him, walk with him, rejoice in him, bless him, praise him and hold him to be good, even in the darkest of his dispensations. Or what about want of love to believers? Those who do not love the Father aren't likely to love the children. Many professing Christians seem to be entirely wrapped up in themselves. Their notion of religion is their own salvation, and their idea of zeal is simply seeing after their own prosperity. Or what about lacking love to perishing sinners? When we can think of those who are lost and not be dismayed on their account when we refuse to speak the gospel to them, when we don't warn them, when we never pray for them, when our closets never witness to our sighs and cries for these poor souls that will so soon be damned and cast away from all hope, when we can even think of neighbours, children, friends perishing and not feel any brokenness of spirit nor pour out any lamentations over them, oh, then indeed we must have forgotten the compassion of Jesus and our heart must be terribly diseased. Or what about suspended communion with God? He quotes, I think it's Cooper, Where's the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? This is hard to take, isn't it? Not, Not bad. It's good for us to consider this. 
But which of us can read these things without feeling our soul being ploughed up and thinking, Oh God, how far short am I falling of your glory? How much sense of spiritual truth and beauty have I lost? Where's my sensitivity to these things gone? So, says Spurgeon, we need to consider the remedies. This is the third thing. And again, you see how there's constant, close application. He says, if you're professing to be a Christian, then now would be a good time to check whether or not you really are a child of God. Take it seriously. Don't just rely upon the fact you were born into a Christian family. Don't rely upon the fact that you've been baptized at some point in the past or that you've, you've been a member of the church for a number of years, that you, you once thought you felt deep repentance and conviction in a true faith. Where are things with you now? Are you going on in the way of righteousness? I conjure you by the blessed God. I'm pleading with you by death and by eternity. Make sure work of it. See that you get to Christ and not to a fancied peace. See that you possess true and living faith in a living Saviour and not a confidence based on mere excitement. The first remedy, make sure you truly are a Christian who has trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, having repented of your sins. A second remedy, if you're honestly uh, convinced that you're converted, remember what will be, what will be the result of decays in grace. Never become lax, never become thoughtless with regard to these things. Never presume that you could not decay and decline. Start back at the sight of any grey hairs. Be wary of these things and where they might take you. Then another remedy. Begin with a daily self-examination. Apparently Pythagoras, the, uh, the, the Greek mathematician, commanded his disciples three times every night before they went to sleep to go over the errors of the day that they might see them and avoid them for the future. Do we do that as Christians? Not uh, self-indulgent, self-pitying misery, but really looking at our sins and repenting afresh. Repentance, says Spurgeon, is a blessed grace. Look at the great heinousness of the sin of departing from God and repent of it. And then to your repenting, join supplication especially supplication or prayer for the power of the Holy Ghost to be shed abroad in you. I do feel, brothers, as if, a few, as if few of us had ever entered into the power of religion. We're rather living in the weakness of it. We live on the outskirts. We've not pierced into the metropolitan city of intense, vital godliness. We want to yield sweet fruits for Christ, he goes on, delicious flowers and all that human nature can produce when sanctified by the blessed Spirit. Oh, by supplication, seek to get more power from on high that you may get rid of these grey hairs. Then again, to your prayers add renewed faith. Go to Jesus as you went at the first. Draw the living water from the sacred well to refresh you still. Go with a penitence cry and ask for restoration and a fresh cleansing because Christ is quick to respond to such pleas. And then to the prayer of faith, add a daily watchful activity. I charge you, brothers, rise, he says. Let your motto be superior, higher yet. Keep your feet, see where you're walking, and press upward. 
Rise like eagles that God has trained to face the sun. Rise like angels whose abode is heaven. Get ye up, get ye up, ye lingerers in the valley, he cries. Ascend to clearer atmospheres, to do yet better service for your God. Do not rest satisfied where you are. It is the beginning of a slide. Press on towards something better. I long heavily, he says, for more grace to serve my master with and more consecration to his service. And I wish the like for all of you. And may each of us who are hearing these things today say the same. I wish for more. I want to, to, to have more grace to serve my master with, to be more consecrated to his service. And I wish the like for all of you. May these words painful as they may be, as Spurgeon shows us uh, why we're uh, so slow to understand our declines and decays, as he shows us where those declines and decays really are, and as he sets forth a remedy for them. May these words, however deep they may cut, also be the means of, of rooting out and bringing out whatever pus and muck there may be in our souls, and then this gospel balm poured in, back to Christ, close to Christ, near to Christ, hanging upon Christ, and walking in his ways in dependence upon him. May God help us to do so, and bless us all as we seek to do it, and I hope that you'll join us again on another occasion to hear more from the heart of Spurgeon.